Shalom and welcome to Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Liel Leibowitz and I'm here alone this week because Joshua, Stephanie and I thought that this week we all needed something special. Look, if you're anything like us, I assume that you are reading the news, doom scrolling on your phone and... Um, What's the Yiddish term I am looking for? You're freaking out because the world has just become a really scary place. There's a war in Israel on one front and another front threatening to blow up. There's unrest everywhere you look. There are Houthis in the Red Sea and we're all trying to figure out who they are and why do they dress so funky? The world, in short, has gotten scary, confusing with war, catastrophe and calamity seemingly around the corner and... Now more than ever, we need someone to turn to, someone who actually knows what's going on, someone who knows what really matters. And what really matters just happens to be the name of a newish podcast that we here at Tablet Magazine produce. And it stars the man that we should really all be listening to, the man who could make sense of Russia, Ukraine, China, Iran, Israel, Hamas, Hezbollah, the whole lot. Put it not just in perspective, but also give us some much-needed historical context and tell us what we actually need to worry about and what's just a load of hype. He is, of course, the one, the only Walter Russell Mead, tablet columnist, Wall Street Journal contributor, Hudson Institute fellow, and really one of the smartest dudes you can listen to on pretty much any and every topic. Now, any person who is this smart and this learned deserves someone to kind of help him roll along. Every Sherlock Holmes has his Watson and Walter has our very own Tablet Magazine's Jeremy Stern, former diplomat, current editor, and really one of the most brilliant people you will listen to. And to hear the two of them talk and make sense of things great and small, shed a light and history, and really give us the context that we need to understand what goes on around us is a real privilege. So this week, we at Unorthodox are taking a step or two back, and we're handing the keys over to Jeremy Stern and Walter Russell Mead and their show, What Really Matters. Listen, pour yourself a tall glass of something strong, find a comfortable chair, and prepare to really have your eyes open, because I'm pretty sure you will never look at the world the same way again. And like us, you will become an instant member of the cult of Walter and Jeremy. Here they are, Jeremy Stern, Walter Russell Mead, What Really Matters. Welcome back, everybody, to What Really Matters. I'm Tablet Deputy Editor Jeremy Stern with you in Los Angeles. I'm here, as always, with Walter Russell Mead, Tablet News Writer, Global View Columnist at The Wall Street Journal, and Distinguished Fellow at Hudson. Let's start with this week's news. First story of the week. Vladimir Putin has said Joe Biden would be a better U.S. president for Russia than Donald Trump and dismissed concerns over his counterpart's age and acuity for the role. Putin's comments late on Wednesday marked his first foray into this year's presidential election as tensions between Democrats and Republicans rise over the White House's efforts to send more military aid to Ukraine. Asked in a state television interview to choose between Biden and Trump, Putin said Biden is, quote, more experienced, predictable, and old school politician, close quote. Walter, is this news or faux news? Well, I would say Vladimir Putin is, A, having a lot of fun 
and B, demonstrating that he is next to Donald Trump, the greatest troll of our time. Honestly, I think probably Putin would be really, really happy with either of the two. Um, Trump, uh, Trump would be kind of annoying in some ways. There are a lot of things Trump would do Putin would hate. Trump would probably pump all the oil, send all the liquid natural gas he could. That would probably do more damage to Putin than than anything that Biden has in mind. But at the same time, uh, Putin, uh, Trump's sort of disruptive capability, his difficulty, let us say, in articulating and carrying out an integrated strategy, all of these things would probably redound to Putin's uh, benefit. The other thing is, let's not forget that one of Putin's biggest goals is, in fact, to drive a wedge between Europe and the United States. And uh, Donald Trump is the living embodiment of such a wedge. On the other hand, we have to say that uh, President Biden, while not quite as much fun for Putin as uh, uh, his former patsy, President Obama, is actually a wonderful foil for Putin. Biden is kind of, you know, Biden offers sort of genteel failure. Uh, he will coordinate with the Europeans on a grand anti-Russian strategy, but it's a strategy that can't succeed. So, you know, in, in this sense, Putin's choice between Biden and Trump is which way does he want to win? Uh, that's one of the many reasons why this is not the choice the United States ought to be making this time. But uh, certainly American politics right now is one of the biggest assets in, uh, in Putin's uh, portfolio. And honestly, he really doesn't care all that much which of the two wins. What he really wants to see is the United States having poor leadership and being a deeply divided country. And I think he's headed for exactly that. Do you think there's anything to the theory that Trump's volatility and unpredictability kept Russia and maybe Iran a little quieter uh, during those four years, or are, you know, are they following a timeline uh, that has nothing to do with who sits in the White House, particularly, or at least if their choices are Biden and Trump? I doubt anybody has any idea of that. You know, Trump backers will say, "Ah, it was Trump who stopped all this." Maybe, but you know, we're, we're not going to get a hold of either the Kremlin or the Iranian documents that would tell us what was going on. And we can, the one thing we can be sure of is that neither Putin nor the Ayatollahs would tell us the truth about their motivations. So I think we're, we're in a black box there. Uh, I do think that, um, you know, Trump's volatility does make people think twice, but it's also pretty clear that Trump is at, as war averse as Biden. Uh, and is really, really not looking for a war. Given that, I think uh, both of them, I think what we're seeing over the last few years is that if we think of American power, American deterrent capabilities, a kind of a scarecrow in a field, what we've seen is that starting about 2008, when uh, Putin invaded Georgia, the crows have started edging a little bit into the cornfield, First, very nervous, you know, a puff of wind blows the scarecrow's cloak a little bit and the crows all fly away. 
but over time, they've noticed that, you know, really that that scarecrow isn't doing very much. And so they're, it takes more to alarm them and they stay alarmed for closer. And basically, I think the crows are are settling into an ice feast of grain. All right. Our second story. In the same interview with Russian State TV, Vladimir Putin said he, quote, didn't get complete satisfaction from last week's interview with Tucker Carlson because the right-wing U.S. pundit failed to take him to task. Putin said he'd thought Carlson was a dangerous person, quote, because I honestly thought he would be aggressive and ask so-called sharp questions. And I wasn't just ready for that. I wanted it because it would have given me the opportunity to respond sharply in kind but he chose a different tactic, close quote. So Walter Putin throwing shade at Tucker. Is this news or faux news? Again, uh, it is uh, uh, trolls being trolls. And uh, Putin is obviously having fun. I think part of this, by the way, is Putin is spinning um, some, there was some commentary in Russia that Putin didn't actually do that good of a job, that instead of making... Using, using the interview to make propaganda that would actually resonate with Americans. Uh, instead, he goes back and he talks about, well, back in 932 AD, which is actually not something that a lot of Americans are going are gonna to be excited about one way or the other. So, um, you know, this, you know why, why didn't he talk about, you know, NATO destabilizing Ukraine or this, you know, why, why didn't he focus more on, on those talking points or even on like the gay decadence of the West? You know, why didn't he really glance some punches? So part of what he's doing is he's saying, well, because that idiot Tucker Carlson just asked me such softball questions, I had no ability to do this, uh, which again suggests that Tucker may not be... Um, uh, as much of a shill for the Russians as just an opportunist. But because uh, shill for the Russians would have probably coordinated a little bit better with the Kremlin before the interview. But it does, I think, um, it it underlines something that this kind of new American right, and I don't want to put everybody in into the same bag there, but certainly Carlson and some of the others are, you know, good at kind of spouting sort of, you know, headline rhetoric, uh, getting people, you know, on Twitter, excuse me, the site formerly known as Twitter, getting people's pulse rates higher and their hormones charging. But that's very superficial. And when you're trying to deal with people who come out from, you know, aren't coming at you within American culture, like Putin, you sort of find that even even trolly Russian nationalist right wingers have a bit more of a kind of serious or, you know, apparently serious intellectual foundation. You know, there are books behind the things that Putin says, and there are there's a whole sort of industry of Russian ultra nationalist writers churning out a worldview. Let's not call it exactly coherent, but a worldview that has points of reference with things that other people have thought and said rather than just somebody kind of, you know, screaming at the television about I hate X or, you know, woke, this is terrible. And it does, I think, suggest that it, it should remind us that outrage is not actually a governing philosophy and can't really be the basis for effective change or even effective maintenance of the status quo. 
And we, we need to look, I think we all need to go a little deeper from the far right to the far left. I think Americans are, are generally speaking, doing what we do really well, which is keeping it superficial. All right. Final story of the week. Donald Trump claimed earlier this week that while president, he told the leaders of NATO countries that he would, quote, encourage Russia to do whatever the hell they want to countries that had not paid the money they owed to NATO. Trump's allies are downplaying his comments, saying that he should once again be taken seriously, but not literally. Meanwhile, Bloomberg reports that among possible moves in a second term, Trump's allies have discussed a two-tiered NATO alliance where Article 5, which requires common defense of any member under attack, would apply only to nations that hit defense spending commitments, meaning 2% of GDP. I should note that this is all according to Trump allies who asked not to be identified and caution no policy decisions have yet been finalized. But Walter, is this news or faux news? As much as anything is with Trump, it's news. But, but what kind of news? It's a little harder to say. I do think that there's there's something, you know, Trump's sort of hounding of NATO. There's this sort of constructive part and a negative part to it. The constructive part is actually if these creeps don't pay up, NATO will in fact collapse. If the Germans are unwilling to pay 2% of GDP toward the common defense, NATO is going to fail. There's no way you, you can't sugarcoat it. And it may fail because the American people get sick of supporting a bunch of freeloading, al quote, allies um, who are, you know, seem to constantly lecture us, but never quite do their part. Uh, you know, it's just not good enough uh, to last or NATO will fail because the Europeans, because they're not, you know, the big some of the big countries aren't contributing enough to the defense, just doesn't have enough stuff. The U.S. has a lot. There's a lot going on in the world. There's the Middle East. There's the Far East. You know, there's you know, America's got a lot going on and we've got a lot of budgetary pressure here. If the Europeans don't do more, NATO will, in fact, fail. It's just simple and clear. They need to understand that. Now, it has nothing to do in that sense with Donald Trump or rather to say that a figure like Donald Trump becomes possible in politics at a time when the sort of establishments are unwilling to think about serious changes, but real problems do exist. Now, having said that, I think there is there is some credibility to people who think that Trump is just looking for a way out of NATO as opposed to a way of, of effectively threatening it. That we can't, we, we really can't know in advance. I'm not even sure that uh, former President Trump knows today what he might do in a year if he did get uh, returned to office. Um, but it, it does, I think the Europeans are not totally helpless here. I think if they if they really get their act together, something they, they don't do very often and, and, and you know, it's, uh, so maybe the odds are long, but really think it through, I think they can come up with a package of of proposals offers and so on that that would actually make it difficult for for trump to walk away from nato even if that's even if there's a part of him that would actually want to do that so something real is happening uh there is there is weakness in nato the center of the weakness is not the united states the center of the weakness is the federal republic of germany 
and some other countries in Europe that are not very interested in their own defense. And uh, it needs to be dealt with one way or the other. All right, that does it for this week's news. Let's have the big conversation. So back to the Middle East this week, Walter, where Joe Biden's walk is getting harder as he tries to balance politics in the U.S. with strategy in the Middle East than his own may be sincerely held, but it seems increasingly unworkable views on Israel, Iran, and U.S. interests. So there's been a kind of drip drip of stories in the press recently. One is about the White House increasingly uh, calling for an urgent need for a Palestinian state, which we discussed last week. And this is happening at precisely the moment when the two-state solution is, at least for the moment, kind of political poison in Israel. Even Benny Gantz and some others who Biden would clearly prefer to Netanyahu can't utter it in public at this point. And then the other story is about Biden's hardening frustration with Netanyahu and the IDF's proposed military operation in Rafah in Gaza, where Biden seems to want to draw a line, but where the Israelis see the ultimate success or failure of their campaign to eliminate Hamas. And meanwhile, during all this in Gaza, the administration is also desperately trying to restrain the Israelis from escalating with Hezbollah in southern Lebanon by trying to strike a deal that would involve Hezbollah withdrawing from the border by eight kilometers in exchange for some Israeli demilitarization of the border area. We'll see where all that goes, but at least a lot of Israelis I've spoken to seem to think that there might very well be a war with Hezbollah by May or June, at least in their estimation. So, Walter, bring us up to speed on all this. Where is President Biden in his approach to both the Israel-Palestine question and also the Iran and Iranian proxy question? And how are domestic electoral politics in the U.S. factoring into all this? All right, Jeremy. Well, look, to begin with, I've been spending uh, the last week not sort of, um, you know, interrogating sources in the rumor mills of Washington, D.C. I've actually been uh, in India and uh, doing things like uh, cruising the Ganges and Varanasi and uh, uh, watching the evening ceremonies there. So this is all this is all trying to read the tea leaves and 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 look at, you know, sort of in, infer what may really be going on from the kind of surface of the of the news, which is to say, maybe I'm just conspiracy theory theorizing here. But I do think there's a part of the Biden policy that makes a lot of sense, but is get, but gets increasingly difficult with time. And that's this. At least it makes sense to me. It may not make sense to others, but he he does, I think, in his gut, think that it, this whole war is the fault of Hamas, not of Israel, not of the occupation. Hamas really doesn't, you know, doesn't actually want a Palestinian state, and so and so the president sensibly, in my view, thinks that actually, you know, Hamas is a terrorist organization that has not just the Israeli hostages. Uh, that it is sheltering behind, but it has seized the civilian population of Gaza and in the most cynical, cold-blooded possible way is using them as hostages. And therefore, while even, even people will die and the president would like for fewer to die, as I think we would all like for fewer to die, 
um, the only ultimate way to do this, if this is even possible at all, is to break Hamas in the way the Israelis would like to do. And so the president, you know, there, there's, there's a broader area of agreement between the president and Israel than maybe sometimes appear in the press. Now, it's actually, given that, it's in the president's interest politically and some somewhat actually in Israel's interest politically for the president to magnify the, you know, I am trying to stop the killing. I am really doing everything possible. And this is not just, you know, for Dearborn, uh, you know, and, and, and political pandering at home. It, it's sort of international stuff. There, there are all kinds of reasons why the United States wants to be distant from Israel. This is a pattern that you can see going you know, on in these wars for a very long time. It's, all, it's almost the standard playbook for the U.S. dealing with this, a U.S. president dealing with this kind of situation. So now, now it gets complicated because um, on the one hand, um, partly as the standard operating playbook, Biden wants to stress the formation of a Palestinian state. Again, you can go back through these Middle East crises and find time after time after time, American presidents go to uh, talking about a two-state solution as a, you know, when the thing, things are getting really hot on the ground in some way. So I think we're, we're seeing this pattern reasserting. They do it especially when they're talking to people like the King of Jordan, who is deeply concerned about the implications of what's going on in Israel, Gaza, and the West Bank for his own country. So we have all we have that happening. But I think he, uh, the president, may be making a bit of a mistake. Uh, partly, maybe to please some of the people in his own administration who would like him to be doing a bit more. He's done something. He he seems to have done something. And, and again, we can't tell without knowing exactly what's going on in these negotiations, and I frankly don't at this point. But it looks as if he's done something that Obama did at one point of basically getting, making demands that were sort of tougher than the ones the Arabs were making. And then, okay, well, the Arabs can't possibly be less tough in their demands than the president of the United States. And so he's he's sort of tried to get this picture of a you know deeply reformed palestinian governance model with the uae and the saudis sort of very much involved in making that happen and linking that very quickly to a two-state solution uh, and the the thing is that that's probably the best in general that's the best way to try to shape all of this but the but to think that there's some way that you're going to get this to happen really really fast, I think is is that is getting. It's not just a question of Israeli opinion; it's Palestinian opinion. It's it's putting all the pieces in place that aren't right now in place. Uh, so he may have gotten maneuvered himself into a position where. He's made his own objective harder to obtain. The Arabs might well have accepted sort of a, a you know, where, where this is opening the pathway to a Palestinian state as confidence in this new administration grows. This is something that is technically not off the table for the Israelis, though it's not, you know, 
Netanyahu would would frankly resist this too as long as possible. But it's a it, it's the difference between the Americans pushing for something that you actually could get uh, versus something that is very very unlikely to come into being. So you have that problem. Then you have the problem of uh, negotiating something with Hezbollah in the north. And again, I don't think that um, that that what we're reading about in the press as a kind of possible um, compromise is is off is, is outrageous. In fact, when I've spoken off the record to senior Israelis, you know, something sort of like this is actually in their mind too as the alternative to a war with Hezbollah. But then you have to ask, you know, what is the administration's leverage on Hezbollah? And the answer is not a lot. I mean, you know, we can't cut off aid to them. We're not giving them any aid. We can't, you know, you know, what is it? We don't have a lot of things that they want. So the only way to get them to agree to things is to get them to fear that there are things they don't want us to do that we would do if they don't cooperate. And here again, the, the Biden administration really doesn't want to get more deeply involved in the Middle East. Um, you know, one way to change the mind both of Hezbollah and the Houthis about things would be to get the Iranians to sing a different song uh, to their two proxy slash allies, however you want to define that relationship. You know, that's that's not going to happen unless the Biden administration wants to raise the temperature with Iran and everything it, that I see suggests to me that, that they, they really think you got to lower the temperature with Iran. So I don't see how they're going to be able to, how they're really going to find a way to get everybody, get all the people on both sides to line up the way they would like. The picture they have of movement toward a Palestinian state with deeply reformed Palestinian governance, I think some stuff on getting rid of the... Um, uh, the incitement to hatred, which is deep in the UNRWA education materials and really restructuring, if not moving, you know, UNRWA to, you know, starting something else uh, in its place where, you know, you'd have, again, with help from the Emiratis, the Saudis and others in the Arab world, people are actually committed to seeing that the aid gets to the people who need it, but that that the political temperature come down rather than be constantly stoked. You know, the, all of this and, and a con some sort of ceasefire compromise in Hezbollah, all of that does make sense, but I'm not sure that they've quite gotten the, the, the sort of put all the pieces together. And unfortunately, again, um, there, there's a, there's a sense that, because in fact, on it, on Gaza so far, they've, they've actually stuck with Israel. And even in this last week, we heard statements from the White House that are saying, you know, well, an attack on Rafah is not in itself a bad thing. Uh, it, you know, there needs to be humanitarians of blah, but you know, that's all in a, very much in a gray zone. Uh, and so the again, the the pressure on them is to offset that with changes to their negotiating posture and rhetoric on other things that actually make 
the negotiations less likely to succeed. And the people that are pushing this inside the administration and out in public opinion, I don't think fully understand that that's the consequence of the policies that they're urging, but it is. And and it puts the Biden administration in the very difficult position of just having to keep saying no, no, no to some very angry, very worried, uh, very pained people who have legitimate concerns. So... You know, they're between a rock and a hard place, and that's not never a great place to be. All right, that does it for the big conversation. Let's end on the tip of the week. We were talking earlier in the episode about Russia, Walter, and our listeners who write in seem to like getting your fiction tips in particular. So this week, give us your favorite from Russian literature. Are you a Tolstoy man, a Dostoevsky, Chekhov, something from the 20th century? What's your favorite? Oh, there's so much. I mean, uh, you know, Solzhenitsyn's Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich is, is, is a fantastic uh, and short read. I have to say, this, this is how self-absorbed and narcissistic I was when I was in a boarding school in Massachusetts during winter term. I and even some of my friends would sort of compare our own lives to the lives of the, <laughs> uh, of the convicts, uh, you know, uh, Groton, Massachusetts is Siberia. Well, there were times it felt that way. But, um, you know, Fathers and Sons of Turgenev's is another, I think, really underrated. And again, not that long of a of a book, um, The Possessed. And one could go on and on. There's not just there's not just one suggestion that you want to make about Russian literature. So my suggestion for readers interested in Russian literature is read it. There's a lot of it. Uh, It almost doesn't matter where you start, but read it. All right, there you have it. Thanks to our producer, Noam Bloom. Thanks to Will Cummings at Hudson and my co-host, Walter Russell Mead. I'm Jeremy Stern. We'll see you next week. And until then, please consider rating the podcast and leading a review.